Well, it's a delight to be with all of you this morning. As was mentioned, my, my name is Rich Penix. I do serve as a pastor at Eden Baptist Church in Minneapolis. And I have known Eric and Clarissa since their college years. And actually, Cl- Clarissa before Eric, because I are f- the first two letters of our last names, her maiden name, uh, begin with the same. And so I, sat, I found myself sitting next to her in every freshman class, pretty much. And I soon deduced that she was the smart kid that I needed to sort of talk to, to know what was going on, and to sort of get the best grades I could in the class. And shortly after, I, I met Eric, and he and I had very uh, deep and encouraging conversations in those, those formative years. And then we didn't talk for about 15 years. <laughs> But in God's providence, it was a delight to, a little over two years ago, reconnect, and then the Lord allowed us to come and serve your church a couple years ago. And I remember faces in this room of many of you that blessed us as we were working and doing projects with amazing meals. Actually, notoriously, you guys set an incredible standard of the kind of food what our team ate uh, throughout the week. And it was just a blessing to be able to, to serve and to help continue to to deepen and establish this ministry as an outpost for the kingdom of God and as a stable, steady presence of heralding the good news of of Jesus Christ. So it's a delight this morning for us to be together, to look into the scriptures. So I'd encourage you now to turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Follow along as I read this psalm in its entirety. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children." 
And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer together. Oh God, we pray for eager, open, humble hearts to be hearers and then doers of the word. Would you make us receptive servants as a church family here today? May we respond and bow low between the power of your holy word. In Christ we pray. Amen. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Have you heard that phrase before? Stay hungry, stay foolish. These were the final words delivered in the 2005 commencement address at Stanford University by the late entrepreneurial inventor extraordinaire Steve Jobs. Many of you who have iPhones in your pockets right now, you have a direct relationship to that man. And as the CEO of the multi-billion dollar company Apple, Jobs began to deliver in 2005, a 15-minute address that is now considered to be one of the most inspiring speeches of modern history. But what made Jobs' speech so memorable that day was that he broached a topic largely ignored in our culture, the topic of death. So he spoke these words. He said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool that I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be. Because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. So having said these weighty and somewhat on target comments, Jobs concludes in the following manner. He says, so in light of all this, stay hungry and stay foolish. He says, I have always wished this for myself. And now, as you graduate and begin anew, I wish this for you. Stay hungry. Stay foolish. You might have seen t-shirts through the years. I have from time to time where this phrase is, is remembered. And Steve Jobs is right about a great many things here. He is. He gets a lot of things accurate. Life is short. The imminence of death is motivating. Death is life's change agent. And our time really is limited. And our, and our lives ought not be wasted. And yet, Steve Jobs misses it altogether. The message of Psalm 90 could just as easily apply to that same group of people sitting before him that day. And it most certainly applies to us as the Lord's people today. 
So Jobs, while he encourages in light of the brevity of this life, the shortness of this life, his conclusion is stay foolish. Moses, in Psalm 90, says just the opposite. Be wise. Be wise. And it is actually through the numbering of our days that we receive this heart of wisdom. So as we have read this morning, these 17 verses, I believe the Lord would have us observe the following truths before us. We see in verses 1 and 2, our eternal dwelling place. In verses 3 through 12, the midsection of this psalm, we see God's sovereign authority set on display. And lastly, climaxing in verses 13 through 14, we see our all-satisfying restorer. Our eternal dwelling place, 1 and 2, our sovereign authority, 3 through 12, and our all-satisfying restorer, verses 13 through 17. The brevity of this earthly life should compel us as God's people to hunger for the all-satisfying presence of the Lord. That's the nugget that I hope you walk away with this morning. The shortness, the brevity of your life matters not your age this morning. For none of us know the next moment before us, right? But the brevity of this earthly life should compel us to hunger for the all-satisfying presence of the Lord. So before we look into verses 1 and 2 and consider God as our eternal dwelling place, a few pieces of background information and context as we dive into this psalm together. Psalm 90 begins what is called Book 4 of the Psalter. Perhaps you've noticed in your study of the Scriptures that the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is a very carefully constructed compendium of five books. So it's actually five books put together. Book 1 includes 1 through 41, verse, or, or ver, book 2, 42 through 72, book 3, 73 to 89, book 4, 90 to 106, book 5, 107 to 150. Each psalm that begins and ends those books, those sections, is significantly placed there as a sort of a front door, back door, or a beginning idea, ending idea. In fact, Psalm 1 and 2 sort of form these twin pillars that you are intended to walk through in order to walk into the great hall that is the Psalter. We see this introduction highlighting the blessed individual who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but rather is able to stand in the congregation of the righteous leading us into the corporate idea of of all the nations and why do they shake their fists and they rage against the Lord and His anointed. And the conclusion is that then kiss the Son, bow the knee. The hope of all people is to bow low between the Son of David who will be the supreme rescuer for God's people. And then blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We are to grasp that before we enter this this beautiful book here. 
having been carefully arranged over a period of of time spanning nearly a thousand years. Do you realize that? The Psalter is very unique in that sense. A thousand years slowly adding to this songbook and prayer book of Israel and putting it together in such a way that we see a number of things. Some even look to parallels that, that parallel the, the first five books of the Bible. So some say it's the Pentateuch of David in that way. But Psalm 89, the end of book three, closes by asserting the promises of the Davidic covenant. And we don't have time to look at it this morning. But God's promise to be faithful to his covenant, but the monarchy is in serious trouble. Things are, it is a low point if you're just reading your way through the Psalter. It's a discouraging, sort of sad moment. It ends with a lament, calling upon God to show his steadfast love and to remember his covenant promises to David. So the Psalms of Book 4, which we begin with Psalm 90 here, provide an answer to that lament, that cry. So what is that answer? What do you think Israel should be reminded of when they're concerned about God's promises that, that, to, to King David? Well, how about an even older voice? How about bringing Grandpa into the room, so to speak, to remind us of the truest of things that we need to hear? The voice of Moses. This is the only psalm that Moses writes. And in that sense, it could be one of the oldest, it certainly is the oldest psalm, but one of the oldest writings in the Bible. Psalm 90 re-anchors Israel's hopes to their foundation. And thus we find ourselves looking at this, this ancient, significant pivot moment in the Psalter. Psalm 90 is, speaks to some unspecified calamity. So in that sense, it is broadly applicable for God's people. But we see the climactic uh, answer to this communal lament. The Psalms are poetry. What does poetry do for us? What's the point of poetry? You know, some, some of you, no doubt, in the room, will, you hear poetry and you think, why do you got to say it like that? Just talk. Just talk normal. Right, right. Just say things. But what does poetry always do? It slows us down. Poetry isn't meant to be a quick text here and there or a, 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 a quick little piece of information that you're on. No, it intentionally slows your mind and slows your heart, right? I saw an example of this yesterday as I'm walking on the hustle and bustle of Michigan Avenue, and then some of us went inside uh, an, an, an art gallery, and nobody was hustling and bustling there. It was different. Art, poetry, the point, slow down and think. So we need to do that this morning. And we see that the kind of a psalm this is, it's a, it's a communal lament to the Lord. But it also intertwines with a lot of different styles of, of psalms. And so it's it, hard to make it a clear category, but what remains is, as one author says, this psalm, what we know for sure, is it's a reflection on the transience of life. 
One that contemplates the nature of life under God's wrath and affirms the necessity of living aright in the presence of the Lord. So, when viewed from a different perspective, this this psalm looks backward to the way things used to be in in verses 1 and 2. It contrasts that with the the way things currently are in verses 3 through 12. And then it looks forward in faith to how God will graciously restore His blessings in verses 13 through 17. So let's now consider these opening two verses, this this hymn of praise right out of the gates in verses 1 and 2. God as our eternal dwelling place. Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, the psalm opens. It begins and ends, this psalm, with an affirmation that God is Adonai. He is the Lord, the Creator and Ruler of the universe. Even as we have just sung this morning, all creatures of our God and King. He alone is the beginning and end of everything. Let's set a sturdy foundation right out of the gates. That term dwelling place carries with it sometimes the idea of an animal's lair. A secure abode that it prepares for itself. The term can refer to God's secure dwelling place in the heavens or His dwelling place within His earthly temple. As He promises post-Garden of Eden that He will dwell with His people in different ways, under different covenants, and under different stipulations at different times throughout redemptive history. But this dwelling place is a treasured thing always among God's people. However, here, this psalm does not say that Yahweh has, and and God has a dwelling place, but that He Himself is the dwelling place for His people in every generation. One can imagine how this would be especially significant for Moses to proclaim from his wilderness context which he found himself for much of his life. As one author notes, for 40 years in the wilderness, God's people had no place to call home. Wandering like nomads in the desert, they had been without any earthly dwelling place of their own. They never unpacked to settle down, but were like a tumbleweed driven by the wind, never tied down to one place. And in the midst of this vagabond existence, Moses acknowledged that his soul rested in God who was his true dwelling place, the author writes. So how closely Moses' declaration parallels the heart of God ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed their secure abode, walking with God in the midst of the garden. How incredible, unbelievable that must have been. And ever since mankind's deliberate fall into sin, God has continually provided a way to dwell with His people. Verse 2 reads, For the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And here that phrase, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, shows God's creative control over both the created cosmos and all that fills it, specifically over people like you and I. 
The phrase everlasting to everlasting parallels that phrase from generation to generation in verse 1, highlighting God's eternal faithfulness to His people. So from age to age, God Himself is the dwelling place for His people. What a truth. Moses is telling us this. When Israel is most fearful that all the promises that God has made to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they might collapse as the monarchy and the kingdom collapses. So here comes that word of assurance. God Himself is our hope. It is in no earthly kingdom ultimately. It is in God. I've never personally lived in a home that experienced a break-in where thieves have entered and stolen personal items. Perhaps some of you have, sadly, and I don't mean to stir up some, some probably bad memories, but having spoken with people who have, I'm told there's oftentimes this lingering sense of vulnerability and unrest that follows for however long. It's really hard. Because what used to be this safe place Almost a sacred place that was that, that secure abode has now been compromised. And there's that lingering fear, a defenselessness, being exposed to those who would bring harm. And while that can be true in this life, by way of contrast, this opening hymn of praise to God, the ruler and creator over all, assures a secure abode. For the people of God in every generation. What a confidence. Nothing can touch us in that way. Does this knowledge comfort you this morning, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that, really? In our materialistic driven world, where our hopes are so often in the things that we can touch and see? Or is your hope in ultimately the Lord? Is God's presence the place where your security lies? Is He the refuge you seek through trials, through temptations, through storms within and without? Or are you exchanging your eternal, secure refuge, that dwelling place that the Lord says He Himself is, for temporal, transient sense of security? that's bound up in the kind of security this world says it can provide. Is your hope and your security in God? God is the eternal dwelling place in Israel's story, and so too for us today. But He is also our sovereign authority over all that takes place in this earthly existence. So let's consider verses 3-12 through together where there is in many ways a lament of the present reality, the present situation. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers, verses 3-6. through six. So Moses contrasting the eternality of God with the, the transience of man, the brevity of man's life, the shortness, returns him to dust. 
He will one day return to that. Notice that it is God. It is God in the psalm who turns men to dust. Not only is the Lord sovereign over our beginning, our birth, but He commands the timing and even the circumstances of our end. As certain as I was born on July 13, 1985, so too the Lord has appointed a day when He will return me to dust. A thousand years, and that's not the end of the story, right? There's much more hope for the Christian. But in following the language of this psalm, that is the condition of all people. A thousand years to the Lord are compared to a short three-hour watch in the night. Several more metaphors are used to communicate how man is transient, but God's eternal. Man's finitude is compared to rushing floodwaters and a passing dream and a new blade of grass that fades away by the nightfall. We're meant to think deeply about these most humbling realities. We are not God. He is eternal in this sense. Verses 7 through 8 were brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Fundamentally, we need to recognize that if it were not for sin's consequences, we probably wouldn't even be having this discussion on the mortality of every human being. As one theologian, D.A. Carson, writes, he says, All suffering, sickness, and death are tied to sin. If there had been no sin, there would have been no death and no illness, which is death's prelude. Death has been seen not as the supreme instance of a cosmic lack of fairness, but as God's well-considered sentence against our sin. Death is no accident. It is God's doing. The perennial slide toward death is nothing other than the outworking of God's judicial sentence in Genesis 2.17. When you eat of it, you will surely die. It is always true that the wages of sin is death, he writes. And just as God observed all of Israel's rebellious grumbling and complaining in the wilderness, so too he observes our even most secret sins. We are fully exposed in the blinding light of God's holy presence. For which I am so thankful that you took time this morning in your service to confess your sins to the Lord. Do you know that's actually quite rare? That in in many, many, many evangelical churches today, to take time to think about this the sinfulness of our hearts and our ongoing, though redeemed, our need to to live before the face of God with a pure conscience. Right? Thankful for that. Just in this way, we know we are all fully exposed before the Lord, as Hebrews 4 says, no creature is hidden from His sight, but all things are open and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. There can be no hiding before an all-knowing God. Only a hiding place in Him. Verses 9-11 through continue, For all our days pass away under your wrath. 
we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life, 70 or by reason of strength, 80, but their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses recognizes God's ongoing wrath that persists as a result of Israel's chronic wandering away from him. And while an example is given here of probably especially at the time and a a long human life, 70, 80 years, Moses laments that the end is always the same for every person. And although the tone here is heavy, and Moses' words elicit heavy thoughts, the climax of the psalm is reached in verse 12. So, here's the conclusion. Here's where Steve Jobs does a totally different turn than Moses here. So, be foolish. Do whatever. You only live life once. Or how's it? YOLO? Only live once? Yeah, there you the the phrase. Uh, Basically, hey, spend it quick. No. So, teach us. To number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What does it mean? What does that mean? To number our days. Well, it's not an uncommon phrase, even in our common you know, society today. If an employee is continually insubordinate in the workplace or something and proves to be a liability to that company's mission, it might be said in hushed words that that person's days are numbered as a paid employee of a company. Or perhaps a, a sportscaster on ESPN or something might speculate that the days are numbered for a particular professional athlete due to old age or, or perpetual injuries. The point is this. Numbering our days means reckoning with the shortness of life. Looking it square on and saying, I get that. And that compels me not to squander this short life before me. And that reality is the pathway to wisdom. Because God Himself has numbered man's days, all men must do the same. All people must do the same in order to present to God a heart of wisdom. The writer of Ecclesiastes echoes this same sentiment when he writes, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, he writes. For sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. I tried to find in a a very uh, easy-to-understand translation, which I thought brought out the meaning really well. What it's saying there is, when you go to a party, and in a way inoculates you, from thinking about weighty matters. When you go to a funeral, you're seeing the reality. You're seeing truth. And if you're wise, you see that, wow, my life is short. How am I spending my days? 
The New Testament writer James says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring, for what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So brothers and sisters, do you live with an awareness that your earthly life is but a vapor? What effect does it have upon your soul to know that all your secret sins are really as public as that last Facebook post? As you see your own mortality side by side with the righteous immortality of God, are you led to the same posture as Moses here? And what is that posture? What do we see in verses 13 through 17? But humble prayer to God for mercy. That's where this pathway of wisdom of numbering our days leads to. A posture of humility. Begging the Lord for mercy. Verses 1 and 2, God is our eternal dwelling place, anchoring us to those ancient promises. 3 through 12, the sovereign authority of God, even as we lament the realities of the present. But now let's see God as our all-satisfying restorer in verses 13 through 17. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So the imperatives, the, com- the commands in verses 13 and 14 just cascade forward with increasing momentum. Return, have pity, satisfy us that we may rejoice. So longing for the Lord's restoration and then pleading for divine compassion and imploring our God to satisfy us with His steadfast, unmoving, loyal, covenantal love climaxes with joy and celebration. So the hope of God's satisfaction coming in the morning, verse 14, implies a new beginning. For just as all our days have passed under God's wrath, now Moses asked that this would be reversed. That all of Israel's days would rejoice in God's merciful restoration of His favor and His presence. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. True commitment expresses itself in action. There can be no effective and true hearing without doing. But the work of our hands must be guided and controlled by God's mercy and grace. As another scholar writes, frail, limited, and sinful as man is, the love of God can transform what is weak for his own glory. Transforming grace is at the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? As those who have been restored by God's mercy in Christ those of us trusting in this gospel, we must stare still into the brevity and the shortness of this life for whatever time God grants us. And we must faithfully invest that time 
into God's kingdom priorities. As we look into this psalm, reading it some approximately 3,500 years after it was written, how can we not be moved to add our voice to the voices of the ages and say, Lord, you are still our dwelling place. Still, let me add my voice to the voices of the ages. You are still our dwelling place. And those generations as well as this generation. As Christians, we recognize that just as Israel found their dwelling place, their their refuge, that secure abode in the Lord, we have found a supreme refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand because our Father's grasp could not be more secure. And His promises are true. They are yes and amen in Christ. He holds on to His own because they are united to His Son through the blood of the new covenant. Our Savior suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us back to God. And by absorbing God's anger and wrath, Jesus propitiated our sins in His body on Calvary's cross. And now we are in Him, Scripture tells us. We are in Christ Jesus. And in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. And it is in Him that we have obtained an eternal inheritance with the saints those of those generations of bygone eras. And it is Him, it is He alone who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, as Jude tells us. You see, friends, our eternal dwelling place is still in the Lord and it is secured for us through the blood of the Messiah. No other refuge will do. Every time I reflect on Psalm 90, it's hard for me not to think about examples that the Lord has used in my life to represent the baton pass from one generation to the next. That keeps saying, as as the, the aging process happens, to say, the Lord is still your dwelling place, younger generation. Don't forget it. Don't forget his faithfulness. I can remember a man by the name of Richard Knox. And when I was in late elementary school, our family moved from a home across town in South Carolina where I grew up. And we moved about a block away from a retired missionary man. And I'd never met this man before, but he was a member of the same church as I was. It was a pretty big church. Uh, But he reached out to us welcomed us to the neighborhood, and he soon took an interest in our family and then, and then me. He quickly learned that he and I both played the trombone, and we both shared the same first name. And oddly enough, we both had the same birthday. And as I got older, Mr. Knox would have me over to his house to play trombone together. <laughs> Not normal, but we did that. But he'd always conclude that time with a short time of prayer for me. 
On one Friday evening, I remember wanting so badly to go to a sports game or just to hang out with friends, but he asked if I'd come with him to a local uh, compassion-oriented ministry in the downtown region of our city. And he asked if I'd share a short talk from the Bible to about 30 men who were there. I remember talking about James 4, about life being a vapor, about our lives being short, and needing to invest them in eternal things. And I'm not sure what I wanted to get out of that Friday night, but it's endured in my memory as a significant moment. And while a lot of people like Richard Knox could probably easily conclude, I've done enough for the Lord. I moved my whole family across the world. I made disciples in Lebanon and Cyprus for decades. And now I've done enough. That wasn't his perspective. He refused to retire from serving Christ. And he modeled for me Christ-like living. As I grew older, I became more and more aware that I wasn't the only one. There's a lot of others that Mr. Knox was investing in. And though well into his 70s, he was still discipling and just encouraging a whole host of young men in the most informal and kind of random ways, like playing trombone together. But he was investing his life. I share that story because it, it displays what a life looks like when God's presence is prized. And when the shortness of life is understood. Mr. Knox did not seek the American dream of making ridiculous amounts of money and retiring as young as he possibly could so that he, with utter abandonment, could pursue all his bucket list dreams. That was not his perspective. Rather, he utilized the time he had been given to lead others to the all-satisfying presence of God. No doubt, to the older individuals, whether you identify as that or not, (laughs) if you have a seasonedness about your walk with Jesus, please don't stop seeking to invest your lives in the next generation. Pass the baton and seek to pass what is most essential, a love for Jesus. Not maybe particular views on this and that, but but what is most treasured, what most matters. Pass on a love for Jesus and His Gospel. Invest in the children of this church. New parents, middle-aged members, the entire family of God. Give of yourself. The simple fact that you've walked with Jesus and experienced His faithfulness longer than many have been alive means you've got stories. You have stories where they have theories or faith, you might say. They have faith. But you have have testimonies of how God has done it. They hope He'll do it. He's done it for you. Share them. Share them. Invest. 
move into that awkward space where you're not sure if you know the person that well yet. But keep telling those stories of God's goodness and of life's ultimate purpose of loving and knowing God. To the younger men and women in this congregation, take the time to listen patiently. Even sometimes if the the conversation meanders and finds its way in the weeds and in the bushes and comes around eventually to the moral of the story. I'm doing that, by the way. I'm starting to do that. I'm finding the younger, younger folks. Don't buy the lie that death will never come to you. And that because you only live once, you should waste your life on foolish pursuits. Receive that baton in your hand and get ready to run and to finish the short, brief life God's given you. Perhaps there's some here this morning that don't know Jesus. You would say, I, I, I'm here this morning more as an onlooker, wondering about whether this, these claims of the Bible and whether the core truths, even what we just recited from the Apostles' Creed earlier, these most foundational things are actually true. Well, know within the privacy of your heart, perhaps, that you are rather unsettled on these things. And perhaps you concur with the fact that life is short, yes, and nobody argues that, but such strong claims about man's sinfulness and God's anger against sin, those are just regressive and primitive ideas. I'm not sure I can embrace. I assure you, God's people are all vile sinners here this morning. But in Christ, they're a certain kind of sinner. They're a forgiven, repenting sinner. That's the only difference. They're not better. They're just those who have seen they need forgiveness. And Christ has that grace they so desperately need. In the place of sinners, our Lord suffered and died so sinners might know again the presence of God. So we implore you this morning, I'm sure with every believing Christian here, to be reconciled to God, to be restored, to know what it means to have joy and satisfaction before the presence of God. Moses wrote Psalm 90 as a prayer lamenting the brevity of life, but rejoicing in the gift of God's all-satisfying presence. The famous American theologian Jonathan Edwards once wrote, O God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. The sense that whatever he would see, he would understand the eternal life to come as most significant, and that that would lead to a numbering of his days, which would bring a heart of wisdom. So rather than staying hungry and staying foolish, as Steve Jobs notes, Moses tells us, in light of the shortness of our days, be wise, be wise. Number your days. Treasure your secure standing in Christ and invest your life moment by moment in the work 
of God's unshakable kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we bow low before these weighty words. We hear the voice of Moses, and if we're honest with ourselves, our knees buckle. And we want desperately to know that all-satisfying presence of the Lord. For every single soul seated here today, would you cause them to hear this living and abiding Word of God and to ask themselves how they can more faithfully and sacrificially commit themselves to investing in one another by treasuring your presence within your church, which you promise, our Lord, is the cornerstone of the temple that is your people. What what precious promise we have that you are dwell uniquely with us now. You have tabernacled in Christ, and we now know this presence at a, to a degree Israel never comprehended. What a thrill, and yet what a stewardship we have. We ask that we would receive these words and go from here with fresh resolve, and fresh zeal, to live for you, and to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Through Christ we pray. Amen.